Welcome to the Journey of a Christian Dad podcast. I'm your host, Dan Lewis. Who is the spiritual leader of your family? Is it you, your pastor, your spouse, the media? Do you know? I did. And sadly, no one was taking responsibility to lead our family. Well, friends, someone needs to take that job, and that man is you. You may not feel qualified, and some days I don't. With the help of God and a community of dads helping each other on their journey, you can be the leader your family deserves. We welcome you to the Journey of the Christian Dad podcast. All right, welcome, guys. As always, I'm always excited to, to record these, and this week I'm excited and also nervous and uh, just ready to ready to dive in. We have got the grief guru with us, Kelly Nielsen. She's a speaker, author, coach. Her book is called You're Not Crazy, You're Grieving. And she's been through a lot in her life. So her mom died of suicide and she had a son overdose. I can't imagine navigating either one of those, uh, much less two of those in the same lifetime. So God bless you, Kelly, and God bless you for taking on this challenge and helping people in their journey with grief. So welcome to the journey of a Christian dad. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I feel really special to be a part of such an exclusive club of women that have been allowed to speak on this platform, right? And so I'm really glad to be here and I'm hopeful that our conversation will be encouraging and edifying and equipping for all the dads that are listening. Yes. Yes. Well, again, super excited to have you with us because this is a topic that maybe a lot of guys can dodge. And Mm. when we were talking, I'm like, oh gosh, as I think back you know, I've got questions even, even in my own personal life. And I've talked to a bunch of other guys that have asked questions as well. So kind of let's, let's just jump into you. Like how was your upbringing and, you know, different things that, that comprise your story. I know there's a lot inside of the, your mom and suicide, and then also your son with the overdose. So I'll let you kind of unpack where you were and where you are now. Yeah, absolutely. So I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I grew up in a very dysfunctional addiction filled household. My dad was and is an addict and has a lot of mental health issues. And so that was my upbringing, just every form of dysfunction that you can imagine. And thankfully I came to faith at age 30. And as you can imagine, as it is for everyone, it was an amazing life changing, transforming event in my life. And so I began walking with the Lord at 30 and had the honor and privilege of leading my mom to the Lord about five years later. So I was the first person saved in my family. My mom came to faith and I watched her change right in front of my eyes. It was miraculous. She completely changed and she became my best friend. We were so close. We spoke every day and uh, we really were praying for my dad's healing and restoration. He has a lot of physical trauma, a lot of emotional and mental trauma, and we were Um, I mean, he was the ministry of my life. I can't tell you how many nights I spent up crying out to God and praying and fasting and asking people to pray for him and just really believing for his healing. And he actually was hospitalized in January of 2017 for psychiatric issues and was placed on a hold. And then they'd released the hold. And it was this whole month long back and forth. He wanted to leave. They wanted to hold him. And actually in the state of Minnesota, where we lived, if a psychiatrist wants to hold somebody, a social worker will come in and interview everybody and determine if it goes before a judge or not. And for whatever reason, in our case, The social worker came in and interviewed the psychiatrist, my dad, my mom and my sister, who all expressed, my mom and my sister expressed that my dad was not well and that, you know, we were all very concerned for his safety and other safety. And the social worker, for whatever reason, dismissed everything. It never went to a judge. She just dropped everything. And so he was released from the hospital two days later, which was a Saturday. And uh, we all thought he was going to leave. He had said when he was in the hospital, he was planning to leave my mom. So we were expecting him to leave. And he came home on a Saturday and I spoke to my mom on Tuesday. He was still there. And I said, what's going on? And she said, well, we're taking it day by day. And I said to her, how can we support you? You know, can I connect you to a counselor? Can you talk to a support group? Cause this is really stressful for you. And she said, yeah, I'll talk to a counselor. And, and the next day I got a call from my dad at 6am notifying me that my mom had committed suicide, that he found her next to a bottle of pills and that she was gone. 
And when I say that that was a shock, like I can't even, I just remember screaming no into the phone. I just was like, no, this, it's not true, dad. It's not true. And, and I said, I'm coming over. <laughs> And he had to get the police on the phone to say, you can't come over here. We're still investigating the scene and whatnot. And I remember going into the closet and trying to even put pants on. It was February 1st in, in Minnesota. And I was trying to put clothes on because I knew I was going to be getting, and I couldn't do it. I, I can't explain the disconnect that like, I, that's shock, right? Like I just couldn't move. And after about 45 minutes, the police called me back and said, okay, you can come over. And I drove over and a drive that should have taken me 15 minutes, took me 45 minutes. I kept turning down the wrong streets. I mean, it was just really crazy. And I will never forget as long as I live, I walked into the house and the room where she had passed away, there was still blood and urine on the sheets. It was still, it hadn't really been touched. Yeah. It was a horrific scene. It was further complicated and compounded by the fact that my dad's account of what happened has changed several times. And there's a lot more questions than answers about the circumstances surrounding her passing. So I can't even tell you concretely to this day that she willingly took her own life or that my dad had a hand in it. We don't know. There's a lot of questions. The best guess that we have is that he knew she had taken a lot of pills and he waited for her to pass before he called 911. He made several comments about that he waited too long and that all this kind of stuff. So so that's what happened. That's That was the explosion in my life that I felt so betrayed by God, not even betrayed by God at first. I at, My first reaction was this whole faith thing was a cruel joke. Like I really was like, I've been had, I've been bamboozled. Like I really was like, which is so interesting because if you would have asked me a week before, I would have told you that I had an unshakable faith. I thought that my faith was so solid and unshakable. I thought that I trusted the Lord with everything and I didn't, this happened. And my, you know, one of my first thoughts was my faith is a joke. God isn't real. He, how, you know, if he is real, how could he possibly let this happen? So I began to go through a process, an incredibly long process actually of healing and restoration because I went to my church and this is why I do what I do today, because I went to my church looking for help. And they didn't have anything to help me. They didn't have any tools. And because of the nature of the loss, it was like bigger than my friends and support system could wrap. Like nobody knew what to say. Nobody knew what to do. And our joke at the time was like, my life is like an episode of Dateline. Like we couldn't believe this had happened. And so with people not knowing what to say and do, it's like isolation on top of everything else, which is so common, especially with sudden trauma deaths, you know, people, they don't know what to do. And so now you're facing the biggest challenge of your life and your normal support is not there for you. And so you feel isolated and lost. And, and so, yeah, I eventually came face to face with the Lord about it in a really beautiful, I, I do have to share this part of the story because this is how the Lord met me in that place and the foundation of faith that I stand on today. So I, I, I've told God in no uncertain terms, like, yeah, I'm not going to be tithing anymore. <laughs> I literally, once I finally got around to talking to him, I couldn't pick up the word. I couldn't go to church. I was not interested in anything, but finally I started talking to him and I said, yeah, I'm not going to tithe God for at least a year. You owe me at least that for pain and suffering. I told him in no uncertain terms, like I'm keeping the tithe just so we're clear. And I didn't spend it though, but I didn't give it at church either. I had it tucked away, like in my budget in the little category that it normally sits. And for a couple of months I did that. And then I went to church one day and they asked for tithes and offerings and Holy Spirit like poked me on the shoulder and said, you know, Hey, you should tithe. And I was like, no, I don't want to tithe poked again. Like, Hey, tithe. And this is weird. I actually had a checkbook. Like I don't even carry checks, but I had a checkbook with me and I physically wrote out a check and I walked it down to the altar, which is not something our church normally does either. But that day they did. I walked it down to the altar and I draw, I, I, was grumbling under my breath as I was doing it. Like, fine, God, I'm going to give you this tithe, but I'm not very happy about it. And I put the offering in. And when I tell you that the peace of God, like it makes me emotional every time I think about it, the peace of God fell on me 
so heavy that I, I went down to my knees and I heard God say so clearly, he said, you have never been more beautiful to me than you are right now. And that for me, was the birthplace of the faith that I stand on today because he didn't fix it for me. He didn't explain it for me. He didn't make it go away. He just was the same person he had always been to me. He just was the same. He just loved me completely in that moment. And that was where I really learned beyond a shadow of a doubt that no matter what happens in my life, no matter whether I understand it, no matter whether I like it, I can always run to him and he will always be the same. And he'll always greet me and accept me in that place. And so that really was the beginning of my healing journey. That is really when he started my reconnection with him and and starting to walk through this healing process. But I still, it still was a long road after that because there were no examples of people walking and healing. Our church didn't have a support group or any anything. And so the police department actually recommended I go to a suicide support group. And I went there and I was encouraged that everybody in the room understood my pain. And what it's the first place where I was like, oh, these people get it. But I was horrified at the fact that everybody in that room was barely surviving. I mean, they were in the same condition I was, and it had been months or years since they lost their loved one. A lot of them were unable to work. I mean, they just were barely going through it, barely surviving. And I walked out of that place horrified that like, is this what the rest of my life is going to be like? Like, I'm just going to be sad and full of sorrow. And this is the danger for us Christians that the enemy would love to come in and plant lies and, and plant doubt about who God is and his goodness and his plans for your life and your ability to be healed and and recovered. And I fell victim to that lie for a season. You know, I walked out of that group going, okay, I guess this is just what it is. And I lived that way for months until thank God, I went to a leadership summit for my work. And I heard a woman speak that forever changed my life, Immaculate. And I always botch her last name, but she survived the Rwandan genocide. And she shared on stage how she was hid in a bathroom for 90 days with eight other women while she literally heard everyone around her being massacred. But most importantly to me, she shared how when it was all said and done, God led her through this healing process that completely healed her from the grief and trauma and allowed her to forgive everybody so much so that she went and met the man that massacred her family in prison and was able to forgive him. And I saw for the first time in my life, An example of someone who had been through something more severe than what I was facing, and she was completely healed. She was full of joy. She was full of hope. And it's like a light bulb went off over my head and hopelessness broke off of me. I thought in that moment, if she can do it, I can do it. And if God will do it for her, he'll do it for me. And so that's when I decided I would get better. I would recover. I didn't know where to start. I didn't know how long it would take, but I knew at that moment that it was available to me and I was going to get it. And so that's when I began studying. I mean, just first and foremost, pouring into God's word and, you know, getting after it in prayer and really seeking healing and restoration, but then also learning about our bodies and our neurological system and what happens to us in grief and trauma. And then just paying really radical attention to everything I do and increasing the things that were helpful and removing the things that weren't helpful. And I started to feel better. And it's that time when I uh, got opened a door for us to move from Minnesota down to Florida. So we moved down to Florida and it was three months after moving to Florida that uh, we found out my son died of a drug overdose. He had struggled with addiction for seven years and I had done all the things, right? I've done the interventions and the treatment and the sleepless nights and the tough love and hard boundaries and all that kind of stuff. And he was actually planning to join us in Florida. He had called saying he just wanted to be healthy and sober. And he wanted to join myself and my daughter Piper down here in Florida. So we were awaiting his arrival. We were preparing and excited for him to come to Florida, really believing this would be a new chapter for him and he could be healthy and sober. And his family up in Minnesota gave him a going away party, 4th of July weekend. And the following day, his best friend texted me and said, have you talked to Quentin today? And I'm like, no, I spoke to him yesterday, you know, on the way to the party, what's up? And he's like, well, he didn't come home last night. And which wasn't uncommon for Quentin and addiction and whatever. And 
but I knew his best friend wouldn't call me unless something was really wrong. So I'm like, what's really going on? And he said, well, there was this post on social media and it just doesn't make sense. So we're trying to figure it out. And I said, what was the post? And he sent me this post, which was a picture of my son. And it said, gone too soon, rest in peace. And the air like left my lungs, like in an instant. I couldn't breathe. I fell to the floor. I called my sister and I don't know how long it took for her to get me to say words that she could understand, but we began the process of trying to figure out what happened. And for about two and a half hours, we didn't know for sure. We, it was spreading through social media, like wildfire. People were calling with rumors and bits of stories. His friends were literally, they found his car and they were knocking on doors, trying to get answers. We were, I was calling hospitals and police departments. And then finally, about two and a half hours later, police officers showed up at his dad's house up in Minnesota and confirmed that he had passed away of an overdose early that morning. And that was July 8th, 2018. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The piece of that story I always share, the fir- I'll never forget this either. My daughter Piper was with me when we finally, when the police finally called. The first words she said to me, first thing she said is, mom, you're not going anywhere, are you? Because think about it from her perspective. She had just lost her grandma to suicide and now she loses her brother. Her first thought was that I was not going to be able to carry the weight of this. She thought that I was going to take myself out. And that's the story I share with parents, especially you're not an island. Your kids need you to be healthy and strong and to recover from whatever life throws your way. One of the things I often say is that trauma is not your fault, but healing is your responsibility. And so if we're parents, we actually don't have the luxury of you know, just laying down and being victims or laying down and wallowing and looking for pity or whatever. We, we have to, no matter how hard it is, we have to face those hard things. We have to do whatever it takes and seek out whatever tools and support we need to get through it because people are depending on us to do it. And that's what fuels, that's what fuels the work I do and the, the, what I will be doing for the rest of my days. You got a million different questions running through my head. (laughs) I guess we just got to the part where your daughter says, mom, you're not going anywhere, are you? Mm -hmm. Where did your thoughts take you from there? Obviously working through the trauma, what you just found out with your son, but where did your thoughts go? Whether it was about your daughter, whether it was about your son, whether it was about answering her question to your own self. And I don't know, am I? I, I don't know. I don't know where you might've been. Yeah. I just kept saying, I, I remember I was on the floor in my closet and I just kept saying, God, this is too much. This is too much. Like, God, this is too much. I just kept saying that. And then the second thing she said to me, she was 12 at the time. She said, mom, God will never give you more than you can handle. 12 year old. And I said, well, I wish you would stop thinking so highly of me because this is ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Did you you laugh a little bit at that point? I mean, yeah, we laughed through tears as I said that because I could, you know, in the two and a half hours when we didn't know, I was like, God wouldn't do this. You know, I just, I, and which was the same thought I had when my mom died. I just thought there's no way, there's no way after going through that with my mom, that God would allow this to happen. Like I just, you know, the whole time we were just declaring life. And and so then that's the second thing, you know, when, when my mom passed away, it happened so fast and I never once contemplated praying for her to not be dead or to wake up or, you know, and so when this happened, I don't know the exact timeline within an hour or two, I was like, nope, we're going to get after this in prayer. Like, I don't, you know, and I called and put it out on the wire to every person I knew to be praying for him to wake up and to be okay. And all this kind of stuff. And I really did put my faith behind that and having to fly home the next day, fly back to Minnesota the next day. I really thought we had a layover in Chicago and a big part of me was expecting to land in Chicago and have a call. Like he's awake. He's whatever, you know? All day Monday, I was praying and contending for him to wake up and for this to not be real. And then 
early Tuesday morning when I got to Minnesota and really early Tuesday morning, I was in prayer and I was like, God, you know, I know he can wake up. I know you can do this. And God really gave me peace that he told he's there and it's his choice to be there. Like he really confirmed for me that this is where he wants to be. He doesn't want to come back. And so I let everybody know, you know, we can stop praying. He's, he's home. That's where he's going to be. How did that come through to you? I mean, the way that I hear from the Lord on, on all things, you know, just a small inner voice, a sense of knowing, like, I just really knew that I believe that Quentin had a choice at one point when, when he was passing and Mm -hmm. that he chose to stay and that that's where he wants to be. So I was able to let him go in that way, or, you know, let go of the idea of, of raising him and contending for that. A few years ago, my friend Brian died of cancer. He had squamous cell carcinoma cancer in his uh, neck and throat area. And uh, we were there with him the night that he passed. And I guess we had all left maybe this, this friend group, the family stayed, but the friend group left maybe an hour and a half or so before he passed. The doctors were like, we don't know. He's super strong. He may be here another week or two. He should have been dead already a week or two ago, but mm. with his mindset and his physical strength and everything else, we, we just don't know. Like this mm-hmm. could be a while, mm-hmm. way longer than we, we would think. And so anyway, we're like, all right, I guess we'll come back tomorrow. And uh, maybe an hour and a half or so later, I'm laying in bed and the phone rings. I'd left the ringer on that night. And of course it's a buddy of mine that we never talk. I'm like, this is, this is that call, isn't it? Yep. Yep. This is that call. Yeah. And we kind of didn't really know what to say and eventually hang up. And I said, I guess for probably like you were describing the pants situation, trying to get your clothes on. Mm -hmm. Like I had that scrambled brain just spinning, spinning, spinning. And finally I, I got a little bit of control and I said, you know, what, what's something that could be beneficial to do in this moment? other than what I was doing, which was not beneficial whatsoever. (laughs) One, I need to sleep. Yeah. Two, I need to do something productive. I don't know what that productive thing could be. And I said, well, I could, I could pray about this. And I said, yeah, I might cry sharing this part of the story, but I just said, God, you know, take Brian up, take, take Brian to heaven. And, uh, he says, he's here. Yeah. He's here. Yeah. I said, no, 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 not, not just there, but like, I want you right there with him. Like, I want your arms around him. I want Mm -hmm. you to hold him. And he says, I am. Yeah. I'm like, no, God, no. (laughs) Like you don't understand God. (laughs) And all of a sudden I hear this commanding command. Mm. Stop. Mm. I was like, well, I was planning to like pray for a while. Mm-hmm. Like you immediately answer my prayers and like, now what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. I guess I'll go to sleep now. Yeah. And I'm like, well, actually, and then I started praying for his wife and his, his children. And then I went to sleep, but it was just peaceful. Like it was unbelievably amazing. And it wasn't necessarily audible. So like nobody else in the room could hear it. However, it was very audible to me inside my head. Loud, like, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Word for word. Yeah. I still get uh, emotional thinking about it to this day. But so I heard you a couple of times mention that you heard God speak to you. And that day, that was what my experience was like that night. Yeah. And that is one of the, you know, I work with people to help them comb through the traumas or tragedies in their lives and find for themselves or remind themselves of those things. And there are some ways that God met me in the midst of it. And then there are some things that he revealed to me later about how he was there and how he didn't, you know, he very much held my mom and me and and was providing for us in so many ways. So that's a process, but those, those things are there. The, the key is you have to, you have to be past the hurt and the anger and the confusion enough to see clearly, you know, where people get it wrong, where I got it wrong. I was so angry and I was so confused that that 
blurred my vision. You know, that didn't allow me room to see things accurately. I was just really driven by those things. Um, and so those are some of the, I call them like, you know, landmines or traps. There are a lot of traps that you can fall in when these things happen. There's a lot of questions that just really aren't fruitful pursuits of your time. And you can go off on these trails that aren't really going to help you move forward or get the proper perspective on things. And then also, like I said, the enemy loves to use, this is the oldest trick in the book. The enemy loves to use these experiences to come and to get you to doubt the goodness of God, who he is, who he is to you, who you are and what your access and rights are with him and in his kingdom going forward. Because if he can get you doubting or so consumed by the disappointment or whatever it is, then you're ineffective and out of the game. And that's what really fuels me more than anything is seeing the body of Christ who've been taken out of the game because of disappointments or traumas or hardships. And they're not, and we all know it, we need all of us on the field. Like there are no options. There's no bench, you know, when you're in the body of Christ, we need every single person operating to their highest and best ability, leveraging the gifts that God has given them completely, fully. We need Christians fully engaged, fully in the game, leaving it all out on the field. And so that's why, I mean, I work with Christians and non-Christians, but I really feel called to mostly equip the body of Christ and to help them wade through this process of questioning or confusion or, you know, sifting through the lies that the enemy tried to let them know so that they can get back to a place of truth and healing and go on and do amazing things because, you know, anything that the enemy causes for harm, like God actually, that actually gives you authority to do things you weren't previously qualified to do. It gives you a spiritual authority. If you, if you connect with the Lord and grow in your intimacy and, you know, build this faith, it also gives you a relational authority. You know, for example, because of the way my son passed, I can go and speak at recovery communities and speak into men and women's lives. And they will listen to me because of the price that I paid. And it's an incredibly high price that I paid. So I, plan to leverage that as much as possible. I'm not going to waste the price that I paid, you know, but when I speak it, it moves them and it allows them to receive from me in a way that they wouldn't have otherwise. And, and those are some of the things that are available to us on the other side of trauma or tragedy. And it's really about helping people discover what that is for them and then launch them into that, you know, launch them into the work of the other side of it the way that you can be a blessing to other people around you because of the very hardship that you went through, you know, learning what that is and then being launched into that. You know, I don't know that we shared, like, it wasn't the same day when the Lord told me that Quentin was in heaven and that's where he wanted to stay. I think the very next day I was talking to God about things and I said, you know what, God, I'm asking for 300,000. And I still, to this day, I don't know where that number came from, but I said, I am asking for a harvest of 300,000 for this one life that was taken. I'm asking for 300,000 lives to be saved, set free, you know, impacted for good and impacted for the kingdom because of this one life that was lost. And so that is now, you know, the journey that I'm on and, and I'll be, and now actually it's changed slightly. I think the number 300,000 is too small. And now that I've started doing this work and I'm actually training other coaches and working with churches and other organizations. So now the number has become 300,000 trained coaches wow. who learn this model and learn this curriculum and can help set millions of grief captives free. Like that is the vision and the calling that I'm, that I'm walking under or following behind. And it's, the thrill of a lifetime, you know, I'm doing things now, experiencing things now that I never would have thought possible. And a lot of it is largely because of what I went through. What are some things that are in the model that you speak of? Yeah. So I have, I have a five-step process that I take people through. We can go through them really quickly, really high level. The first one is becoming a map maker and determining what you believe and what you want. And we honestly spend the most amount of time on that first step because it's so foundational. And if you get it right, all the other steps will go amazingly. If you don't get it right, the other steps are kind of pointless. It's like go in monopoly. Like if you don't pass, it doesn't really matter. And because like I said, all of those lies that the enemy tried to put are hanging out in the, what do you believe? And also what do you want? 
is, you know, people can chase after vengeance or justice, or they want answers, or they want this or that, like, it's really the time to sift through and identify and define for yourself, you know, what do you believe? And what do you actually want? Once you get clear on those things, then the rest of the steps are in support of that. So step two is what we call protecting the path. It's about really placing boundaries and, and making sure that your life and your environment and your, the people in your life, everything in your life is set up to facilitate healing and that everything is congruent with what you said you believe in what you want. So you're not allowing room for influence that would be counterproductive to your healing and recovery. Then step three is what we call our mindful makeover. That's where we teach people about some of the things I've learned about the neurological systems and neuroplasticity, the fact that our minds are always changing and always programming. And so we get real intentional with the type of programming that we do. And we also teach in step three, some basic meditation and coping skills for when the grief is just so heavy and overwhelming. We give people practical tools on how to deal with that. Then step four is our community collaborator. You know, grief, life in general is not intended to be a solo sport. We're designed to be interdependent on one another and healing can be accelerated when you're surrounded by community, but the right kind of community, you know, that support group that I went to was not good support for me. And so we help people to identify what is healthy community or helpful community and what is not helpful community. If you go somewhere and there's no one there walking in victory, turn around and walk out because you, you have to find people who have what you want so that you can learn from them or that they're farther down the road. So that's our step four, how to be, how to find healthy community and how to participate in it. And then step five is my favorite step. Step five is uh, finding a purpose for your pain. And so we help people First, internally discover the ways that they have been benefited by this awful thing. It doesn't mean they liked the awful thing or that the awful thing was good, but recognizing the ways that they've become better, stronger, more empathetic. For example, I'm a much better parent by having gone through this. Like I hate that, that that's the truth, but it really is. I parent completely differently to my daughter Piper because of having gone through this and that's a benefit, right? So we help people recognize the ways that they're better. And then lastly, we help them determine how they can use this externally to other people. How how can they make the world a better place, be a blessing to those around them because of what they went through? And so it could be just as simple as being able to be empathetic to a friend who goes through loss. You know, there's a certain thing that you can only know by knowing, you know? And so once you've gone through loss, you're better positioned to walk alongside somebody going through loss. But also in a lot of people, you know, going through tragedy or trauma, inventions were created out of trauma, you know, organizations and nonprofits and speakers and coaches and all these amazing things in the world came out of trauma. And so that's my favorite part of my job is to help people start to wonder and dream with God, like, okay, what could you do with this? You know, how this thing that happened to you, how could you turn it on its head and actually use it to cause good in the world? This thing that the enemy meant to use to even take you out, you know, how can you give it back to him, you know, tenfold? Like in my case, I've started a nonprofit, wrote this book, you know, doing all these things. And I know for so many people, there that is in in their future for them they just have to have the space and encouragement to wonder and dream with the lord and then the support to step out and begin to do some of those things so that is our process that sounds like an awesome process you're totally <clears throat> totally speaking my language you talked about being on the field in the game active 100% highest potential all these things like that's phenomenal. <laughs> number two, protecting the path and being number one, being the map maker. I'm like, we talk the same way. I love it. Oh, good. <laughs> I love it. And the, the neuroplasticity and the programming, like that's Carol Dweck and mindset. Like, yeah. Oh my gosh. So for those that don't, that miss that, that neuroplasticity, the more thoughts you put into your head, you'll start putting grooves into your, the way you think, and it'll just become the natural pathway that you take. So if you throw negative thoughts in your head, if you throw junk into your head, yeah, it becomes automatic. It really yeah. does. And 
a quick story about where I, when I knew this was real for me. So my, so one of the things I do with my clients is I help them come up with a statement or a framework for themselves that they're going to meditate on every day, at least once a day to, to tell their brain what they're going to think. And mine was in relation to my son, Quentin, he's not gone. He's just not here. I will see him again one day and we'll have all of eternity to spend together. That was my framework. That was my And I would say that over and over, sometimes minute by minute. And about six weeks or so after he passed away, I was driving home from work and I heard in my voice or in my head so loud, he's gone. It was like someone was yelling in my head, he's gone, he's gone. Like that's all. And I started hyperventilating and I start like, I've never had a panic attack, but I think that might be what it was. And without even thinking, I gripped the steering wheel and I said, he is not gone. He's just not here. I will see him again one day and we'll have all of eternity to spend together. And the second that last word came out my mouth, it left instantly. Like that physical attack, panic attack left my body. And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, this stuff works. <laughs> like this, You actually can take your thoughts captive. You can, we can't control always when grief shows up or how it affects us, but we can direct where it goes from there. And that the biggest lie, we, one of the biggest lies we have going on in our culture is that you just, you know, grief just sort of happens and you just wait for it to get better. Or even worse, a lot of places say you never get over it. You just learn to live with it. That is what our culture is telling people that you never get over it. You just learn to live with it. And that is a lie. We are telling people that they just have to accept and endure. And that grief's just going to show up and have its way with you. And you just have to like, wait for it to be over. Like in what other area of our life do we do that? If you got diagnosed with cancer, would you just sit and wait to see how it plays out? No, you would come up with a plan. You would get after that thing. You would, you would solicit doctors and support, and you would go to drastic measures to do everything you can to get rid of it. And I don't know why, even in the body of Christ, we don't treat grief the same way. Like you need to have a plan. And the, the, but the good news is if you will adopt a plan and you will do intentional, consistent actions to combat grief and deal with it and process through the loss and go through a mourning process, we are seeing people see such accelerated healing. I'm here to say that like, it does not need to take years for you to get massive healing and recovery from grief. It doesn't even need to take months. You know, our main program that we do with people is a 10 week program. And we do assessments every week from where they start and where they end. And I'm the amount of progress and breakthrough that they're getting in 10 weeks is amazing. It's again, the principle of whatever you tell your mind is possible. Your mind will work backwards to figure it out. It's like the four minute mile. Everybody thought the four minute mile was impossible until somebody did it and then everybody could do it. So I'm here to say like, I'm the four minute mile as it relates to grief. Like instead of saying it's going to last forever, why don't we go after this thing and figure it out and see how much we can collapse time and make this accelerated process so that people can be healed in a matter of months instead of years. You know, I'm, I'm here to tell you that it's available and it's possible, but it takes consistent, intentional action and it takes the right mindset and belief system because if you don't believe you can recover and it breaks my heart i talk to people all the time and so many people just believe their recovery is not possible or it's not for them or somehow if you if you're happy after someone passes away it means you didn't love them there's all these you know that's why we start with lies is the very first place to start because there's a whole bunch of people believing a whole bunch of lies and some people live out the rest of their days from that place just this sad surviving existence and that is not certainly not what Jesus came for us to have And also not what your loved one would want you to have either. What I say is it isn't instant and it isn't easy, but it is possible and it is worth it. You know, so I just really implore whether people work with me or not, whatever it is, if you've had a trauma or a tragedy, keep looking until you find the tools and the system that's right for you. And then give it everything you've got to like get back to a place of healing and health and wholeness, because that's what Jesus paid for you to have. And that's what your family is depending on you to do. So I've got some sort of random questions, really situations. A lot of guys have come to me. And when I was in a situation where uh, somebody close passed away, 
Um, it was on my wife's family side. And when your mom passed away and you were mm-hmm. angry mm-hmm. and weren't quite sure what exactly happened. And mm-hmm. there could have been some things that could have changed. You could be angry at your dad. You could mm-hmm. a lot of different, and I'll, I'll throw in negative thoughts, negative questions, negative pathways, any suggestions on uh, working through those negative thoughts that come up or the anger that comes up? Yeah, for sure. Well, I took up kickboxing. <laughs> like it sounds so silly, but like I went to hard, heavy workouts because it felt so good to like punch and express the anger. But I will say all of those things, needing answers, feeling angry, all those things like God wired in us. There's a reason that we feel all those things. So those things in and of themselves are not wrong. The problematic part is when they become the focus and an obstruction to your healing. So if all you're doing is living in your place of anger and expressing your anger and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's not allowing to actually move through, you know, I was, yeah, I was consumed with wanting answers and with wanting my mom's memory, you know, vindicated. I was like this close to calling the media. You know, I was, I felt like the social work system let her down. The hospital let her down. The police certainly let her down. They didn't investigate anything. You know, even we called them and said, Hey, did you know my dad just got out of the psych ward? Did you know this and this? And they're like, well, no, but they never even questioned his story. And I felt so infuriated. And like I said, I was this close to just going to the media with it, but thankfully I stopped and prayed and I asked God if this was something he was calling me to do, because God will give you the grace And he will provide the resources for what he's called you to do. But if he's not asking that of you, you're going to be running on your own fuel and your own steam. And when you're grieving, your emotional energy is already overtapped, you know? So I just, I kind of came to the end of myself where I realized God wasn't asking that of me. And that if I wanted to get better, I needed to let that go for the sake of my healing and recovery. And that's part of the work that I help people realize is if your highest aim, if you, if what you want more than anything is the restoration of peace and joy and to be healed from this thing, then you may need to lay down some of these other things because God, Jesus is the peace, provides peace that surpasses all understanding, but he is our Lord. And it says that vengeance is his and all these other things. So you may need to submit or surrender some of these other things in order to receive the peace that surpasses all understanding. And that doesn't happen overnight, you know, and that's not an easy thing, but those are some of the things that we help talk through and work through with the folks that we work with, because it's really important, you know, to have a place to express that. I do also, there's a huge power from taking emotions and thoughts that are in here and getting them out in some kind of capacity. So really journaling or writing a letter, if you're really angry at somebody, writing a letter and then reading it out loud, even if you're alone in a room, neurologically, it does things, it removes the emotional intensity. You'd be so amazed that if you have thoughts that are ruminating in your head, just writing them out will help them to not feel so strong inside. And then same The difference between writing it out and then reading what you wrote out loud lessens that emotional intensity even more. And so um, writing a letter to the person who passed away or God or whoever you're angry with and just getting it all out is definitely does wonders, but we actually lead people through. Then we talk about unforgiveness and there's some things you can do to walk through a forgiveness process to really you know, heal up any of those things. Cause unforgiveness will keep you stuck as well. If you're carrying unforgiveness, it's really going to hinder or impede your healing process completely. So when you uh, brought your tithe up when you didn't want to, right. And that really symbol of forgiveness. And it sounds like it changed and became mental forgiveness also, where you came to accept and actually forgive. My friend, uh, Jim, he was on the podcast earlier and talked about it. He wrote a forgiveness letter to his ex-wife and they'd been divorced for a really long time. And it was a horrible, messy divorce. And he thought he was a hundred percent okay with it. Like time heals all wounds and all that type thing. And he's fine. And he got an assignment one time to write a gratitude letter, forgiveness letter, whatever. And he picked his ex-wife, wrote it when he put it in the mailbox. Mm and shut, you know, the mailbox up. He goes, I just felt like all this was lifted off me that I didn't know was on me. He goes, 
the strange thing was when I went to the mailbox, it felt like it took minutes mm. to walk a short distance, like right, my right. Were moving so slow. And when I came back in, my wife says, why did you sprint to the mailbox? Oh, wow. <laughs> so that, you know, when you're, when you're stressed out, your mind can yeah, change the reality of the situation. Yeah, and, and his wife knew what he was doing. She knew he was putting the letter in the mailbox. He asked her permission to actually mail it. Right. And she says, sure. Yeah, whatever. Like we're good now. And that night when they went to bed, she says, I don't know what happened to you, but I feel like we can actually love each other now. Like I can really love all of you because you're just a different changed person. Oh, wow. That's powerful. Yeah. So to hear you share what you shared, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so similar to Jim and it, and it was journaling, writing a letter and yeah. then letting go of it. Like, yeah. I no longer have control over this, you know? And he goes, I didn't even care that I got a response. And I, I didn't really even think about a response. Right. And, you know, I'm done with it. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And there's a lot of those pieces when you have loss to work through, you know, there's a lot of feelings and emotions and people. One thing I will say is it changes when people say, oh, grief changes you. Absolutely. It does change you, but you get to decide if it changes you for the better or for the worse. Like, I think people say that with a negative context or connotation. And it's like, it doesn't need to be bad. You know, this version of me is a much better version than the one, you know, before all of this. And so going through and realizing the changes to relationships, it changes every relationship because it changes you, you know? And so processing through that does take some time and learning how to live in this new skin that you have, because you are different, you know, and you're, as you're healing, you're changing even more and more. And, and so it does take a bit to navigate and find your way. It's beautiful when you, when you figure it out and, and figure out the other thing I've learned is that seasons, the concept of seasons. Oh my goodness. Life happens in seasons. And so recognize the season you're in, embrace the season you're in, get as much as you can, but don't hold too tightly because it's the seasons are always changing. And so even grief recovery, that's what I tell people. It's a season, not a sentence. And so you need to reorchestrate your life and put things in order to make sure you're doing everything you can to facilitate healing during this healing season, but it won't last forever. And you will have future seasons that are more healthy and more full of joy. And it's the analogy I like to use is if you were in a major car accident or had major surgery, you know, if something like that happened, you wouldn't just think you could go back to your life, you would recognize that for a little bit, you're going to be operating differently. And you need to have some extra support and some extra tools, maybe physical therapy to learn how to navigate again. And it's exactly the same, you know, but the good news is with the right tools and support and, and actions, it, it doesn't need to last incredibly long. Yesterday at, uh, at church, the sermon was about funny enough, uh, the who's and Dr. Seuss. Oh, really? It's like the Grinch comes down, steals all the presents and the who's chose to celebrate and choose joy. Yeah. And then the Grinch came back down and was allowed, you know, to come back in and they were all happy and everything. And he says, everybody here, the takeaway is you've got a choice. Right. And I ask you this week in this Christmas season to choose joy. So I, I hope my kids got that message from it, but it is a choice. We get to make a decision. It is. And some days that choice is easier than others, you know, and, and when you're facing grief in the holidays, especially, you know, it breaks my heart. Holidays are really tough for people who've lost loved ones, especially the first set of holidays, but you're right. We do have a choice. And the, the thing that I see is people actually get offended when you tell them that they don't have to stay that way, that they don't have to be sad for the rest of their life, that they can learn and grow from this and choose to be happy. There's a, there's a whole subset of people that 
they're just, I mean, just like the gospel, you know, they're just not ready to hear, but we are faithful to plant seeds and hope that it, you know, becomes fruitful in a future season, but it really is a choice and we can choose where our focus is and we can choose what we meditate on. And as we meditate on those things, it's changing the wiring in our brain and changing the chemistry in our body. And it's allowing us to obtain more and more peace and joy. That's, that's the truth. That's just the truth. It's just really hard truth to hear when you're, you know, faced with devastating loss. So when husbands and wives, when they lose a child, I know that's unbelievably traumatic. Uh, I can't imagine going through that personally. What are some things, I know the divorce rate is staggering over 70%. Yeah. What are some things uh, there, whether you're in that situation or whether you're next to that situation where it's your friends who lost a child, Um, any, any recommendations or tips there? Yeah. You're right that the the divorce rate is so high because one of the things that our rational minds want to do is find someone to blame. You know, we want it, we need it to make sense in our brain. And when something that doesn't make sense happen, our brain will sometimes actually manufacture things (laughs) so that it can make sense. And so, so many times with a husband and wife, their individual brains will find reasons to blame the other, you know, and then they're associating their spouse with the reason for the loss. And, and so again, that's a lot of the work to be making sure that they're connected to sounding boards and sources of truth that can help their thought process and make sure they don't go down those wrong, dark alleys. Number one, uh, making sure that everything is truth-based and that they're, they're taking steps to renew their thinking and make sure they're keeping their thoughts pure. And then the second thing that I work with, I mostly work with women and and I work with a lot of wives and for them to understand that they're going to grieve differently. Everybody grieves differently. And so as you're going through grief as an individual, it's about your healing and your recovery and giving people grace and space to grieve the way that they need to grieve and that you alone are responsible to find the tools, resources, and support for your recovery, right? And whether that's pastoral counseling, coaches, whatever it is, but I really would encourage husbands, husbands especially to make more room for their wives to process and share with them as women were you know, we tend to be more emotional than men, or we at least are more vocal about our emotions and we need space to process and remember. And what I hear over and over again from wives is that husbands are so compartmentalized and task focused and like, well, we need to do this and this and this. And they're in their way, they're trying to love the family and move the family forward, but to just recognize and maybe slow down and make room for their wives to just feel it and to mourn together, to be doing external processes of grieving. That's the difference between grief and mourning. Grief is an internal condition. Mourning is an external process. And the reason a lot of people don't ever get their grief resolved is because they never mourn. They don't go through the external processes to help resolve the grief and come to a place of peace. And so if I would have any tip for husbands, it would be to make more room for their wives to do that with them, to try to find things they can do together. So they're emotionally bonded in their mourning instead of it being completely separate journeys. I believe that relationships can actually come out stronger and more fortified and unified. If you will, in whatever ways you can do some things together, you probably still will grieve separately and differently. And you probably both need support, you know, individually, but if there are pieces you can do together, that's going to help unite you as a family or as a couple. And my wife and I lost a couple miscarriages. Mm. And I think the first time maybe we just kind of laid around in bed together, maybe all day in the dark, pretty much. Mm. And kind of just were there for each other. And then the I think it was the second time. I think it was the second time, but... We were walking around the mall. We never go to the mall. <laughs> yeah. And we're like, isn't it funny how everybody's just going about their lives and they're completely oblivious as yeah. to what we're going through right now. And kind of like you laugh when your daughter asks you that question, we were kind of laughing and joyful and completely sad and sorrowful all at the same time. Yeah. And we just appreciated knowing what each other was going through and being there to support each other with no direction for the day, no purpose for the day, just being there for each other and allowing each other the space to talk as feelings came up. And um, 
was just a, such a strange moment in time. And then in that, those cases, the, a lot of the wounds and healing happened when we had, when we had our daughters, however, mm. in those moments, it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot. So that just making room to process sometimes is a big deal for guys. Yeah. Since, um, we don't always, uh, think that way to help emotionally support our wives and allow our wives to process out loud and, and be there with us. Instead, we might have it on a task list. Well, guys are fixers. Yes. They want to fix things. And that's what's what makes it hard, even with friends and family, is it's hard for people to just sit with your pain, for you to be able to express your pain. That's our human nature is to want to fix it or correct it. And that's that's where we make so many mistakes with grief is people feel the need to say something to try to make it better. And please, if I can, public service announcement, do, do not say to people, oh, well, they're in a better place. Don't say that. Like, yes, they are in a better place, but I live here. Like I live here. It doesn't, it doesn't help me that they're in a better place. I'm trying to grapple with how I'm going to live the rest of my life here. And so many of the things that we say, we're trying to comfort people, but it's really our attempt to try to fix it for them. And some things it is depending on where you're at in your grief, like you just need someone to be with you in that moment and to be in your sorrow with you to just sit, to just be, to just hold space, to just let you get all the stuff out. You don't need anybody to fix it or make it better. And I think that's like, guys have a tough time because to see your wife hurting and to know, tell us how to do that. Tell us how to do that. (laughs) Just be quiet. Just tell her, you know, I'm here, just, I'm here to talk as long as you need to talk. We'll sit here until sun up. If that's what you need, you know, I'm just here to listen and I love you. And, you know, if you could just let go of an agenda or a need to fix it, but just reassure her that as often as she needs, you're a sound, you're there for her and you want to hear what's on her heart and mind. And you want to be a source of comfort for her. That would be amazing. (laughs) Is there any way where you can suggest things that we can do to keep us out of fixer mode? If I knew, <laughs> I mean, just being prayerful and led by the Holy Spirit and just, you know, so maybe your guys's mantra is God is restoring this, you know, God is restoring this day by day. And my job is to follow his lead, you know, that you don't have to fix you just, your job is to follow his lead. And so, and Holy Spirit probably will equip you in the moment. And if Holy Spirit tells you to just be quiet, then be quiet. And if Holy Spirit gives you an idea, or I can tell you too, husbands and wives, I mean, your wife, anything that you can do to remember and honor your child is going to be so ministering to her heart, because that's part of the hardest part. And this part might make me emotional. Part of the hardest part is when people stop talking about your child and they stop remembering and they stop celebrating, that's the most painful thing as a mom, you know? And so if you as a husband can do things or bring up things or create new traditions of way to honor and celebrate and remember at holidays or birthdays, or even Wednesdays, like to just keep your child alive and keep the memory alive with your wife and make that an okay thing to do in your house and in your relationship. That is going to be so life-giving for your wife. Mm. So I like that. Pause, take a breath, stop your fixing thought, ask God, ask the Holy Spirit, you know, for strength. Um, Physically, you may do something like stick your tongue up against the roof of your mouth and push it against your teeth so you don't talk, like prevent yourself from (laughs) taking action and fixing and and jumping in to save the day and uh, give yourself permission to literally hang out without an agenda other than. And ask her or you can you can ask her because a lot of times she'll know. So if you just say, is there anything I can do right now? Or what's the best thing I can do to support you in this moment? Just ask her. And, and she'll probably know a lot of the times if she says, just listen, or, you know, can we go for a walk or whatever it is, but yeah, be quiet and, or ask her would be my two cents on that. Yeah. So you mentioned 
being able to choose and go take a direction and grab somebody that, that has got some expertise. So often I think when we're in a situation where we're supporting a loved one, a spouse, and we maybe reach out to our buddies, the guys that have the wisdom and have been helpful in the past, and you get the advice of, well, it just takes time. Mm. Pray. Uh, this will just keep coming back season after season. Well, that's like the best stuff we've got to help our buddy. <laughs> and that might be the best advice that you hear from your buddy. And he's doing his best, but he might not necessarily be equipped with the best advice. So I love what you said that the general uh, advice is that. Right. Where there are some ways and some people that can help. And certainly hearing you talk, I'm like, this is a lot of the same stuff that we use in life outside of grief. Right. Like, why wouldn't we apply similar strategies inside of grief and talking to people that understand the emotion and the feeling and the thoughts? So someone with experience like yours, there's not too many people that have that level of experience with grief. Right. So that's what I would encourage fathers and husbands to do too, is try to find someone that has a loss experience close to yours that's walking and healing. And, and unfortunately they're few and far between. That's why. So now I'm like training and raising up other coaches to do this work because, you know, I walked around for months and months until I saw Immaculate. That was the first person I saw that was actually healed and actually walking in it. So we need more and more people who really go after this thing, get fully healed and can be examples in their communities and in their congregations. So, um, but they're out there, right? So if you look to find someone, you know, marriages that have lost children or gone through loss and are really healthy and whole, seek them out and, and try to learn from, from them as best you can. So I don't know if you've got one last bit of uh, advice or something you want to cover. Uh, I'd like you to talk about how men can emotionally abandon their families during hardship is one thing. If you've got something addition, you want to add to anything, feel free. And then we always close out with a challenge at the end. Uh, so I'll plant that in your head for, for a challenge we can come up with for guys to do this week to next week. Um, so yeah, I'll open it up, let you talk about something else you want to add to it. Yeah, well, the emotionally abandoned part, we, you know, we kind of touched on that a little bit that I think guys just go into survivor mode and all of us do to a certain extent. When you go through shock and trauma, the parts of our brain, that fight or flight kind of reptilian thinking, we go to very basic survival mode and that serves a purpose for a season you know, in the initial days and hours after shock, you need to operate that way. But making room for relational connectivity and for the expression of emotions and everything needs to happen sooner rather than later. And I think that that guys just get into defender protector mode, we're going to charge forward, that sometimes they can leave their family behind without realizing it. So if guys could simply make that part of their mental checklist, as you're defending and protecting and moving your family forward, you have to make sure you're not leaving your family behind. So if part of that can be you know, part of my job as the dad and father is to check on the emotional well-being of my wife and children. And if you're not the resource for them, helping them find the resources that they need. But that piece can't be neglected because some other really disturbing statistics are when overdose happens, families are more likely to have another overdose and same thing with suicide, you know, so especially in those types of losses, your family is at a very vulnerable, fat, fragile state. You as the leader need to recognize the season and put things in place, protections in place and helps in place for your family to make sure that they're not emotionally left behind. That would be my thoughts around that. And have you got a challenge that maybe the guys could do from week to week? Well, you know, this whole thing about not fixing, I think is a great challenge because, you know, it's a muscle that you can develop and a skill set you can build way before trauma or tragedy strikes. So I would challenge guys this week, as your wife is sharing with you or your children are sharing with you, I'm going to challenge you to not solve or fix any of their problems for a week that you are, even if you have the solution, even if it's obvious, I'm going to challenge like There's a nail in your head. <laughs> I'm going to challenge you to bite your tongue and pray as you're listening and just 
give them space to be and explore and discover solutions for themselves. And maybe we'll put a little caveat, like only as the Lord leads, if, if the Lord or Holy Spirit puts something on you to do, but that you really would be led by the Lord and not led by your own fixer mentality or rationale or logic. I think that'd be a really good challenge. That would be a really good challenge. And maybe even to take it further, every time you go to fix something, maybe keep a note. Write it yeah. down. What was oh, it? Oh, yeah. What, you know? Find out how much of a pattern that is for you. Yeah. Put a little tick mark on a piece of paper. And then you can go back to it and go, huh, that worked out. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't die. They're okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I find it funny the things that I don't fix that end up working out fine on their own, yeah. sometimes seconds later. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, this was awesome. Um, yeah. yeah we, we cried. We work through a lot of things. I love your five-step process. That's just brilliant. Well, it's it's God-inspired, Holy Spirit-led. So most of those things tend to be. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your story and just being all the way vulnerable. Um, I don't know how you didn't break down a number of times, although you've, you've been doing this a while. Yeah. Well, thank you very, very much. And uh, hopefully the guys take as much from this as I did. I absolutely loved it. And guys, I encourage you with what Kelly said of, uh, if you're not the resource for your wife, look for one. And one I would recommend, I'd recommend Kelly and the grief guru. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. God bless you guys praying for you and your families this week. And uh, God bless you, Kelly. You are a gem. Thank you for sharing everything. And I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the journey of a Christian dad podcast. Thank you guys for being a light, shine that light out and let others see it with you guys. Part of this community, it helps me be accountable to you guys. It helps me be accountable to myself be accountable to God and Jesus. Hope you appreciated this episode and picked up some great things. Hope you like the challenge and hope you can execute on that challenge this week. I ask of you, please subscribe, share the show with others, join us inside of the journey of a Christian dad on Facebook, inside our private community. Share that community with others, have your buddies join, have other dads that are looking to grow in their faith grow as spiritual leaders of their family. As we engage in our journey and be intentional with it, we can help others grow theirs as well. We thank you again for listening. We thank you for all your reviews. Look forward to reading a review of yours on a future show. So, dear God, thanks for blessing all of us and thanks for drawing us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Have fun, guys.